0: This is 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT, released twice per month. Every episode brings you one step closer to cyber resilience by hearing how IT leaders are practicing cybersecurity. Resources mentioned in the episode can be found in the show notes. If you're ready to take your cyber resilience to the next level, be sure to subscribe so you can catch every episode. Vanessa,
1: I want to thank you for taking the time today to join us on the podcast entitled 10 Steps to Cyber Resilience. It's an honor and a privilege to have you with us today. I know you're a very busy woman. You're traveling a lot lately. You recently, I guess, not hosted, but also organized the CyberX in Toronto, which I'll ask you a little bit more in a couple of minutes. But before we get started, we have a list of questions we're going to go through, and I want you to be as honest as you can, share as much knowledge as you can, because I know you have a lot of knowledge in the space. So I'd like to know, first and foremost, who is Vanessa Henri? What do you do on a day-to-day? And what brought you here with us today?
2: Hi, first, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to discuss. And then that's kind of a broad question, right? You know, people come to you and says, oh, how did you get there? And then they expect an answer, like it went from A to B. But the reality is that, you know, we try different things over the years. I started my career in a cybersecurity firm. It was a startup, got acquired by a big Japanese company. Over time, I started writing blogs there, and then I noticed that the proposals for intrusion testing and the light were not updated. So I researched them. I started to write the proposal, write the sales stuff, marketing stuff. I was doing my PhD. Nobody knew what to do with with me, really. What does a lawyer in cybersecurity do? And I made my way to data protection officer, and then eventually I was in charge of compliance, started Privacy Advisory Services, And I thought, "Ah, it's hard to do without giving legal advice. Then I became a lawyer, finished my bar, work in big law. Uh, I did my three, four years. And then I realized, well, lawyers are not really good at risk management, are they? Like our answer was always, it depends. It depends. Here's 35 pages to tell you, it depends. (laughs) And I thought, you know, the reality must be in between of this. And that's when we created Henry & Wolf. So we are a cybersecurity data governance dedicated boutique law firm, and we have people that are from various backgrounds, ranging from cloud security to lawyers. So what we do is we provide actual solutions when there's a legal advice. It's a legal advice with explanation on how to operationalize it and with the hope that it will fit your actual technological infrastructure. So this is where I am. Again, it sounds like A to B, but it was a little bit more complex than this. Try different thing. And- this is the background I have, and I guess it gives me a different perspective on cybersecurity.
1: It's very interesting that you mentioned that, and you mentioned your journey. And frankly, that's kind of the journey we've taken as an organization. We will dive too deep into that because it's not about us today. But it's really how the market has evolved, where you talk about protecting an enterprise is not only a technological challenge, there's also a lot of legal challenges that come with it. Right. So for me, it's an inspiring story for a lot of individuals who want to get into the space who worry that it may be too technical and or too legal so there's a good balance of both and obviously you've done a great job of of setting yourself aside from the pack which is why we were honored to have you on, on the podcast today before we get into the questioning quickly because you deserve it you've been identified as top 20 women in cybersecurity. i know that was in 2020 you've done a lot for the community so the CyberX took place last week 30 seconds or less what was that all about and what we should receive uh, going forward with, with these events
2: so I was at the Women in Cybersecurity conference just a few weeks before and you know I think it was the first conference after 2 years of not seeing each other and right. we said- Okay, this is great, but we want to talk. We want to talk with people and less hearing others. So we said, how about we just do a party, you know, and let's be accessible to others. Let's be as accessible to younger people who did not have access to mentorship for two years. So really that party was about bringing everybody in cybersecurity, you know, take off everything that's too formal. Forget about trying to get to the board of director table. Let's just try to get to the bar altogether. Try to get to the dance floor and just have fun. And we were surprised we had got to turn out the 700 people. It was completely sold out way before the event, but people from Vancouver, Montreal. Thanks for it was also a launch party for anne Wolf. So we had our friends there. It was great, great seeing everybody in the industry and just seeing these synergy built at all levels of expertise and all different verticals of cybersecurity, really.
1: Amazing. Yeah, and I heard the same thing. It was a great party. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it, but definitely will be the next one. And thanks again for setting this up for the community. So I'm going to get into some questions. Some are easy to answer. Some may have some longer answers, but really what I want to do is I want to pick your brain and really get some details as to your experiences and what you're seeing. So I've broken this up into a few different sections. We're going to start with cybersecurity and cybercrime, because I know that you're pretty close to that and you understand the game really well. But before we go into that, when you're talking to clients, I'm curious to know what are you seeing as the biggest concern over the last 12 to 18 months? Obviously we're out of COVID now where we're kind of post-COVID, hopefully, what are you seeing as the most pressing or biggest concerns that you have in your customer base? Ransomware, personal identifiable data theft, give me a little bit of what you're seeing.
2: So the fact that we're a law firm and even that I was well, I'm still a lawyer. throughout so the pandemic means people come with different wording, right? First, if they call you, they need something, they urgently need it. Because when you're at the point of calling your lawyer, it's, you really need that solution. So people will not say, "I, I needed that digital risk identification solution. Usually what we see a lot is at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was that big boom of investment in tech, we saw, I want to raise money and I need to go through the due diligence. How do I make it true? Because lawyers used to be like, oh, do you comply with Castle? You know, the an anti-spam law. Yes, okay, we're good. Lawyers are becoming a lot better at asking questions, even if they don't always understand the answer. They do understand the lack of credibility into the answer. So nowadays we're expecting incident response plan, business continuity plan. We're expecting a CEO who knows the cyber risk and doesn't call the chief information security officer. So we spent half the pandemic actually getting this company ready to go through due diligence. So it's really kind of a wider concern. And from a legal perspective, it's very simple. You're either a personal data machine or you're a trade secret machine or you're both. So are you developing software? Or are you doing AI? If you're developing software, I'm going to go right away for your forensic incident response. And are you prepared to monitor and identify the incident? And can you actually know if you have a trade secret breach? Because for me, otherwise, your company has no value. So I would say companies come to us for preparing for a due diligence or preparing for a bigger client that has many of these requests. So, first part of the pandemic, a lot of requests. On- how to grow with cybersecurity, how to make sure cybersecurity follows the growth. And once they have these in place, then they can walk toward the solutions. So I like to say that we are like the the first step towards being able to purchase solutions after. And it it is surprising, but there are many businesses of any sizes that are actually still at that step. That's why they call the lawyers, because they want attorney-client privilege. And the other part, I would say, later on, the pandemic became... Uh, everything that is contractual management, vendor management, international transfer of data, lots and lots of contract, And, you know, these lawyers in ours that have to manage all of this, they're not cybersecurity experts. And they're not uh, tech lawyers either in many cases. And they end up with more than 5,000 agreements they need to update by the end of the year. Uh, it's a very challenging thing to manage if you're international as a company. You have agreement of 90 pages long, just about that, the privacy. So a lot of work we're doing with legal counsel that are trying their best, just as cybersecurity uh, professionals are trying their best, to come up with solution for Law 25 and all of these legal requirements.
1: Interesting answer. Perhaps I'm not privy to a lot of those conversations when you talk about due diligence and using uh, that as aspect of growth in your organization. So that obviously resonates with a lot of people, but we don't hear it on day to day. It kind of brings me to my point that I was talking to a little earlier in my next question. So over the last few years, we've seen a significant inflection point in IT where IT and legal and compliance and security are all coming together and you've just mentioned it, where a CEO has to know what your incident response plan looks like and not necessarily the CISO. And your CEO should know what your BCP look plan looks like, your business continuity plan, right? So you want to make sure that the higher level executive staff or chief executive staff has direct access to this type of information so they know how to run an incident response plan in the event that it happens. What's your opinion when it comes to companies, regardless of their size, who are making these important IT decisions. Should all these points be taken into consideration when you're planning and supporting and buying your technology to enable your business? Do you have to worry about all these aspects and how easy is that?
2: This is a great question. And I would say you'd be surprised the number of calls I've been on and it is tangible that there's a tension between IT and legal and they don't want the same thing that they want. Or somebody's done something that somebody else doesn't understand, doesn't want. Many cases, They see us as like we're competing with auditors of accounting firms. And, you know, and all of this time and energy is wasted and it's not going to help your cybersecurity. That's number one. Those companies that are doing the best that I find so far, those that have actually set set up that committee, that security committee, security Mm -hmm. data protection committee, just set it up. First, your board of directors is not equipped to deal with these risks. So having that delegation towards a committee that's more equipped is useful for decision making, but it's also how you get everybody at the table. I don't know as a lawyer that it's not going to be reasonable if I get everybody to notify me within 24 hours of a data breach if nobody tells me. So nobody is going to grow and get better if they don't sit at the table understanding what the business really needs. Business continuity doesn't work in a vacuum. If your lawyer doesn't know that this is your continuity system, then maybe I'm not gonna put this the right service level agreement in it. And that's usually what happens. The right hand doesn't speak to the left hand. And that's constantly what we see into businesses. And that's the biggest challenge to actually make cybersecurity work. Cybersecurity is not a thing. You cannot say like they do cybersecurity. Your lawyers still have to do the contract. Your HR still have to check the criminal check. It's actually everything. Everything is cybersecurity in a business. It's just like saying you're working in a construction company. What is health and safety? Everything. Exactly. Everything is health and safety. So that committee will actually bring you the right decision-making expertise and will also make sure that you're not doing something that doesn't make any sense for somebody else. So by all means, it is the first step of going forward with a real enterprise program is getting everybody at the table.
1: I like what you said that cybersecurity is not one thing. In our opinion, we talk about cyber resilience and it may be an overused term, but for us, cyber resilience is a bigger envelope or a bigger umbrella and cybersecurity is just one piece of that puzzle. And like you mentioned earlier, you've got all those other aspects and other variables that come into play. And I'm assuming that at Henry Wolf, this is where you guys specialize. You can bring both sides of the table to agreement in some way, shape or form. I guess that's what you guys are doing with organizations now.
2: Correct, and I would say that very often, our door of entry is either the legal department, and sometimes because they're fighting, but sometimes because legal has realized there's a risk issue there. And you know what, legal may not be good at the technical, but they're really good at advocating for something. And they will go and get you that budget. So have seen company move IT under legal because legal was better at getting that project, that getting that money, getting that resources and carrying these risks to the board and not because legal is actually more technical. So there's all kinds of reason why business are purposely or being forced into bridging that bridge. And cyber resilience is a very good term, because cyber resilience then opens the door for digital risk management, which is a much big, I think, approach, but necessary holistic approach to building products, to building business strategy. And cybersecurity is just part of every single risk you're going to look at. So I think you need to Take a step back and look at digital risk. So, what we do is we work a lot at the strategic planning level. You know, we're not going to be there and go and put your solution into your business. But the hardest part is getting the board to actually give the money and agree on the strategic plan and move forward. Because once the board has has said, we're doing this, then the technical people, they know what they're supposed to do. It's rarely there that the problem is, but there's so many competing risks in a business, competing resources. And there's investors that, you know, they don't want to do security. They want to have profit right away. So you're going to deal with all these different power relationships. And quite frankly, that's what lawyers are good at. That's why you hire a lawyer. Um, I, I think there's, there's a lot to do at the strategic level and getting people at the governance level to move in order for the industry to do their job. And that, that's where we specialize there and everything that's the business process, like handling third parties risk handling how do you make sure that something comes in, the input and the output are consistent. It's one of the hardest thing to do in a business, even if it does sounds very easy when you read about it.
1: I can definitely appreciate that that's where the expertise of, uh, like yourself comes in, where you bring those individuals to the table and, and hash it out together. Having that background, which you said earlier, which is a little bit more technical and understanding and appreciating some of those variables, I think could lessen. Because I get what you're saying when it comes to competing with IT and legal and all the different organizations. Like a lot of people just want to get their job done and move on to the next thing. But there's a lot of hidden variables or hidden issues that need to be taken care of before you can actually implement the solution. Thank you for that one. I'm going to move a little bit more to data protection or privacy. I want to talk a little bit about that. And this is something I know that you've, based on your experience, you definitely have a, a, obviously a lot of experience in this, but has Canada been ahead or behind when it comes to data privacy laws and protecting the individual's rights?
2: That's a good question. I say the first thing in notice is there's a big danger in thinking we're ahead of others. And unfortunately, we have fell into that trap for quite a long time. Uh, and it's very common for people here to say, well, we're more advanced in technology. To assume that what we perceive at third world countries are not as advanced, or don't have this, or don't have that. Well, I have news. Take a plane, go to Africa, you'll see a lot of very extraordinary blockchain programs. Go to South America, you'll see a lot of things are, are going on in fintech. We're not the center of the world. And no, we are not the most advanced uh, by any means. And and that attitude actually probably has prevented us from looking at us in the mirror and say, how can we improve? And I think we let it go for too long, way too long. You know, we don't have a full adequacy status in Canada. Only people had this adequacy status. It is obviously threatened right now that law is really far from catching up on GDPR and mm-hmm. has not resulted into any tangible Uh, changes or lawsuits because there's no power to enforce. So if we don't do anything, not only are we going to lose that adequacy status, but we are going to be inconsistent with our own strategy. And that's the same thing we tell our clients. What's your strategy? Oh, I want to be a superpower in AI. Okay, well, do you have a data governance policy? No. Well, that doesn't work like that. You need to be consistent with your strategy. In Canada, we had this strategy on AI for quite a long time already. So it is about time that C27 was there now? Maybe it's a little bit ambitious to put the three of them into one law and hope it's going to go true. But you know, it is about time that we discuss AI. And it did not need to be a legislation. Maybe it just needed to be guidance or whichever. But we can't just go on with the privacy law that's ineffective and just keep building AI and think it's going to be fine after. So where we are at no. But I do think that we have introduced very interesting concept into this new legislation, whether the provincial or federal level, and I think some of these are quite innovative, and they're a step ahead of where GDPR was, and as it should, because we've mm-hmm. been looking at it for five years, so we should learn something, but I do think that there's some interesting concepts, some of the things I would have liked to see more about, and the left in the, in the room being the right to privacy being further recognized, but there are some very interesting innovative concepts that were put in this law, and when I read it, I actually thought well, this is somebody who knows their thing. This is somebody who has actually read other laws. You know, as both a lawyer and somebody who specializes in that field, it's not always the case. Sometimes that person obviously has never read another law, Right. Uh, but that is not the case here. You can see there's a fair amount of research that went into these laws.
1: So you mentioned C27 for the audience. For those who don't know what C27 is, would you mind just kind of summarizing it for, for, for everyone?
2: yes absolutely actually when we launched and Wealth, we thought almost the government was making us a gift because <laughs> the same week after they went forward with, and that's the federal government went forward with c26 c26 is a law about reporting incident but not just the privacy one it would include ransomware and the likes and it comes also from the reality that The government cannot do a lot in terms of protecting from threats it doesn't know nothing about. So we had C-26 that was deposited. It's not adopted at the moment. And just after was C-27. C-27 is very similar to C-11, which was a federal privacy law that died when the federal election was announced. It's been a promise of the liberal governments for quite some years already to improve digital rights. It is three parts. So I it's slightly ambitious. Maybe I would have split it into three. Maybe there would have been more chance for it to go through because the current federal legislation has been notoriously very hard to change. It's not the first tra- time we tried. Uh, the first part of it, actually create a Consumer Privacy Protection Act. So what's important is, is consumers. We're going after CCPA in California. We're going after the same mindset, which is to Preserve the trust into the digital economy because we are a digital economy right now. How many right. people are working from home, right? Uh, did you see what happened last week when Rogers went down, the kind of effect they went through? So we are definitely a digital economy. The second part will create a tribunal, a data tribunal. And obviously other lawyers like me were probably geeking when they read this. Like I may be a data judge one day. It's a profession that definitely did not exist 10 years ago. And that is very original. It is not, if you think about it, completely crazy from what the federal has done before, because we do have a tribunal for intellectual property. So why not data? We need people who are specialized. Now it is challenging to go forward with such a big change to the legislative and judicial system at the same time. There's also a third part to this where there would be an Artificial Intelligence Act. It would force company to do an impact assessment. So now everybody's thinking AI impact assessment. You're going to see all kinds of new profession coming out around this. And if the result is that there's a high impact, the definition of which is going to be into regulation, then a number of obligation will apply to the manufacturer, the operator, and the professional sellers of that AI, which creates really a requirement as an entry to the needs and market for all companies, including your service providers. So it is quite ambitious, but it does cover a lot of innovative concepts ranging from a tribunal all the way to AI impact assessment into the private sector.
1: A lot of information for someone who's never worked in this domain. So I can appreciate where we're going with this from an industry's perspective. Let me ask you this. So you mentioned C26, 27 both being very ambitious laws. What are the chances we see these actually pass legislation in the next year?
2: I would say there may be a number of amendments that will go through them. It's a discussion to add. I've been said the C26 has not been very controversial so far. I think the law. Logic behind this, We are seeing a level of cyber espionage and threats coming from foreign countries that is higher than we've ever seen since the 1970. So there is definitely a need to know. And I do think that this law has a good chance to go through. In terms of operationalization, eventually what that's going to mean is going to be automatic reporting, right, of directly from the logs. And then eventually we can maybe have a threat intelligence program at the national level that is strong enough to anticipate things. That will give enough data to run an AI and kind of make better prediction about uh, cybersecurity issues. I have not seen anybody says that is completely crazy law. Why would we do that? So there seems to be good chances that this will go true. Now, in terms of C-27, it doesn't fundamentally change what we already have as a law under PIPEDA. The principles stay the same. There may be a stronger consent requirement because it has to be reasonable, too. So you cannot say, yeah, they consented to that crazy stuff that I forced them to because the government's going to say this is not something that a normal person would consent to in the first place. So it does make it a bit harder, but for companies who have to comply with international law, it's not a departure. There's nothing there that's shocking. There's a private right to action. That private right to action depends on the authorities doing their job as well. So I don't see anything that is shocking, but the tribunal may require significant resources in a time where we do not have them. So that is where it may hurt a little bit more and the AI part is innovative. It's not something that we have seen in other countries. We've seen it only at the federal level, uh, between federal entities. There's no regulation, so it may be a little vague for people to actually want to vote on this. They may be worried that we may not have the resources to say what we suggest, and the Ministry of Innovation is enforcing that law, so not the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. It's a a little bit of a different thing. And I'm not sure if it's going to go through in its first iteration. I wouldn't be surprised that we have to come back with a different version before it goes through. But if it goes through, then great. All of these laws are written very broadly so that regulation will specify them. So they are with the hope that they will go through. Well,
1: yeah, we'd definitely be looking out for those two laws. You talk a lot about AI, more than ever, we're acting with AI systems, whether they be chatbots, virtual assistants, and maybe you can give us a few more examples of what AI actually is in the enterprise and at the commercial level. But if an individual who doesn't have the background, as you do, obviously, comes to you and says, well, how comfortable should I feel interacting with these types of systems? What would you say to them? What could you tell an individual who doesn't have, obviously, the level of experience you do?
2: Right. Well, first, I think it all comes back to the notion of trust. There is also a lot of technology I'm not fully making sense of, even if I understand the concept. The thing with artificial intelligence is a very broad thing. It is more a category of technology than an actual technology. And there's just as many ways to do AI as there's way to process data. So the first thing you want to understand, is, is that AI using my personal data or is it using business data to create business intelligence. So far as business intelligence is concerned, neither C-27 is very interested into that, neither are most of the current law, because what it is, is it's using confidential information of businesses, which they are so responsible for. Where we have a concern is where we use personal data and we produce personal data or identify data at the scale of a town, so that you can have discrimination or that you can predict what people do and maybe influence their behavior. That's where you have a slippery slope. And that's what Mm -hmm. people are concerned about. Very rarely people are concerned about actual things, except maybe you have clear view AIs, all of these things are a little bit scary, but for most part, most businesses are not doing that. But the fact that they could do that is what is making people scared of giving their data. They don't want to be conditioned by their own future that they're not aware of. And that's where transparency comes in. What are you doing with my data? How long are you taking them? Are you using synthetic data? And beyond all of this, even if it's not going to breach my privacy, what would be the impact for my children in 20 years from now if you constantly choose for them what is the best thing to watch next? Will we have these rabbit hole? Will you actually decide what is a good or a bad show? That's a little bit of the concern is the slippery slope. From a cybersecurity perspective, what people very often forget is that these systems are also vulnerable. Like every other system, they can be attacked and there's not a lot of talk about it. So I think as a consumer, try to find these systems that will predict, that will take your behavior, because that's usually where the risks are. And then the first thing you can do is be cautious of it. Like be aware of it. That thing is suggesting this movie because I just watched this one and this one, maybe not because that's really what I want to watch. You know, have a sense of critical thinking about what is shown to you because if you only react to it, uh, that's when it becomes dangerous. And then understand how you can control these parameters because sometimes it's very useful. I'm going to say, if I go to somebody else's Netflix, I am all lost. Like, where are my shows? I don't want to see these things, (laughs) right? Right. So it, it has a sense of convenience, but you do not want convenience to overpower other things.
1: Yeah. And we're going to see a lot more of this as the future comes into play here with said recommendation engines being designed by Netflix type of subscriptions and so on. How does your organization help companies who are trying to implement AI? You know, how do you help them in the planning process? What advice would you like to offer? And what would you do for organizations who are looking to venture into this? Because this is obviously a very key topic going forward for many.
2: First, I think people are always waiting. They're waiting like before they start their ideas and then like, oh, maybe with a privacy assessment, we look at the impacts of this. But the truth is, you can do that with your ideas. You don't need to actually have carried it into technical terms to start doing this at the conceptual level. It's a bit like doing a business plan. When you do a business plan, you look at is it doable? Is there a regulation against it? What kind of money would I need? Well, doing a project is very similar if you want to kind of lo- lower this to the accessible part. And, you know, think about the human right. I- is this an environmental problem, what I'm creating? I- is this going to create discrimination against, let's say, people who cannot afford that service? And it's really about asking if, 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 and if. And now, obviously, lawyers are good at this. We live in a risk-match-risk all the time. It's very right. fun for friends. But start asking questions. And you know what? the most obvious question are always those I earth. Ask your kid what he would ask you and he's always gonna ask you that question that you're like, that's a good one. But then once you start going into the technical, just keep that updated and just know it's really about choosing between possibilities and which is the best possibilities and amalgamation of choices. So maybe you can use synthetic data And not only are you going to have a lot less issue on the privacy side, but you may actually save millions on the long run of compliance because you've done that decision. So I know that we think like this is the way to do things, but generally speaking, there's always options. So know your option and pick between your option is really the best way to make sure that the option you have is not a bias.
1: Keep it simple and start small and make your way through the project. I like that approach, Vanessa. I really do. Look, I mean... We've talked a lot about AI and privacy with you today. Before we wrap up, I I just want to maybe give you 30, 45 seconds to tell us a little bit more about Henry Wolf and how you can help our audience if ever they are in need.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is really, um, we work with you either from the start of your product, the start of your business. We have clients of all sizes. We have startup, we have emerging technologies, and we also have critical infrastructure and national security projects. What we do is making sure that your project is secured from the start. We end everything that relates to vendor management, everything that relates to procurement, contract, negotiation, making sure that you have a supply chain of value that is consistent all across and that you understand your role in that ecosystem. More and more, there's data mobility framework, there's ecosystem, smart cities. You're not alone. You know, It's not enough to think about risk like this. You need to think about risk at large, and th- this is the perspective we bring at the strategic level. And whether it's to negotiate an agreement, get you ready for an m or actually responding to an incident, because it does happen, mm-hmm. it's really about putting the right processes in place and making sure that you're comfortable going for these risks. So uh, we do understand that at some point, getting that technical report, getting that assessment becomes a risk if you cannot act upon it quickly. And that organization gets stuck in this, right? They think if I don't do anything, it's negligent. But then if I have the information, it's gro- gross negligence. Right. So they get stuck into a, a paralysis mode. And you got to start walking before you can start running. And you're not going to be able to run before you walk. And so true. what we need to do is we need to get started. We're going to put it onto attorney-client privilege. We'll get you to understand your objective. We'll get you to start walking. And eventually you'll make your way to this vendor and they'll start making sense for you. But they don't make sense for you day one. It's okay. Because That's because you don't understand your security risk. We're going to find them, put the right business process in place, and then you'll be able to interact with all these cybersecurity vendors and understand what they bring, understand what kind of insurance you need, and actually move forward in maturity. So it's really about getting you started and you know also managing this very complex contract of 92 pages that nobody... Yep. I like yep. them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well... Vanessa, you've given us a lot of information to chew on here. We really appreciate it. I hope we can do this again soon, and hopefully we can get together when you're back in the city. But I'm going to say thank you on behalf of myself, my team, my audience. I want to wish you a great day, and I hope we can chat again soon.
2: Thank you. Likewise. It was great talking about this.
0: All right. Take
1: care, Vanessa.
2: Take care.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT. Assurance IT is in the cybersecurity space, specializing in data protection and compliance. Since 2011, they primarily help mid-sized enterprises in Canada. If you have questions about protecting your data, reach out to us directly at info at assuranceit.ca or visit assuranceit.ca.